1: I'm there. I've got the American dream in my grasp. And it was just like, is this it?
0: Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And each week, I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people. Today, I'm super excited. In this two-part series, we're featuring Fox Sports journalist and analyst Chris Broussard. In part one, we get into his personal and professional truths and how he hustled his way to the top. Let's go. Good people, welcome to the True Prescription Podcast, episode number 37. Today, I am supremely honored to uh, interview and talk to a man who you know, who you all know very well. Um, a successful sports journalist, successful husband. Uh and in the last few years he's been working on a a national movement to help young men succeed using spiritual and God-based uh principles. Chris Broussard. What's happening, man? (laughs) How are you? I'm great, man. Welcome. (laughs) It's good to be here. Welcome. Welcome to Harlem. It's great. (laughs) I always
1: love coming to Harlem. That's right. I spend I spend a decent amount of time in Harlem. Yeah. That's good.
0: That's good. I know you you got some people here. Um so just to give a quick background on Chris, he's uh was born and raised in Baton Rouge, um actually born in Baton Rouge, raised in in the Midwest in Indianapolis, Iowa, and Ohio. Ended up going to uh Oberlin College where he played point guard and uh got a, a degree in English as in nineteen ninety and I was I was excited to hear that he still plays uh you know, <laughs> close close to 50 and he still plays so that's right, that's that's, right. Uh, that's that's a great look um quick fact I wanted to just mention about Oberlin that um was the first U.S. college to admit uh, African-Americans and that was in 1835 and also the first to admit uh, women two years later and part of the reason that's so amazing because slavery didn't actually technically start or technically end until eighteen sixty five. So that means thirty years prior to the end of slavery. Yeah. They um you know they 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 admitted us and I, you know, that's pretty pretty amazing pretty progressive for the time.
1: Yeah, know? it was amazing. And one of the reasons I Oberlin had a great, as you said, history uh with African Americans. Yeah. Uh it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Awesome. And so there's a lot of African-Americans in the town of Oberlin. Yeah. And uh, it was a good, you know, at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but it was a good African-American population there. Because okay. I played Division Three basketball. That's okay. what Oberlin was. And most of the schools recruiting me were lily white, you know. <laughs> so one of the <laughs> right. things that separated Oberlin was that it did have much more diversity. Okay than a lot of the schools that were recruiting me. So that that was a big reason why I, I did end up deciding to go there.
0: Okay, awesome. And, you know, obviously met your wife there, so that was a great look. Yes, that worked out. M.D. So he got his, uh, after he graduated with his English degree, he got his first job as a beat writer uh, in Ohio, first in Cleveland for the Plain deal and then Akron. And then from 98 to 2004, he worked uh, in the tri-state area following the Nets and the Knicks. And uh, then in 2004, Chris signed on to work with ESPN the Magazine, but he was also featured on Shows We All Know, First Take, NBA Countdown, Outside the Lines, Numbers Never Lie, NBA Coast to Coast. And um, you started, when did you start with Fox? Uh, October 2016. Okay, so it's been about two years now he's been working for, yeah. for the Fox Network. And uh, he's been married for 23 years. Um, to uh, Crystal Broussard. He's got two twin daughters who are both in college now. One's in Michigan and one's at, at Penn. So you yes. got that big bill to pay. Oh my <laughs> so God. Continue. You got to keep working, I my brother. Him, they're
1: going to be juniors. <laughs> I tell them, you got two years left on the payroll. Dose. And, I, and I've said that. And then I was talking to my wife yesterday and I was like, I was like, oh, we're going to have to pay for their weddings too. Oh. So that that they Ooh. stay on the payroll. And I said to her and I was Ooh. like, you know what, though? Now, I don't know how old they'll be when they get married, but right. I was like, I don't think it's right when somebody gets married at 28 or 30, yeah. in their 30s, yeah. for the parents to pay I agree. for the wedding. Like, I agree. You, you're a full-fledged <laughs> adult at that point. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right. I mean, we, we we are helping with the house. That's
0: right. Better do a destination wedding. Right, right. So, <laughs> I see you in the Bahamas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, they, they're they doing great. They make me proud. So uh, I'm thankful.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's great. And uh Chris also is working now. He's a founder. When, when was King founded? What year was that? We
1: started King in, I believe, 2010 with a prayer, a national prayer call. Okay. Uh, but then we started building chapters about five or five and a half years ago.
0: Okay. Yeah. So King stands for knowledge, inspiration, and nurturing through God. Nurture. Nurture. Nurture, God. nurture yep. through God. And um, deals with issues like fatherlessness, dropout rates, unwanted pregnancy, drug drug and alcohol abuse. But it's a it's a national um, mentorship uh, organization, but it's a movement. And right. we're going to talk a little bit more later about movement versus, you know, just an organization. But this, these are some of the things that Chris is working on. Um, so, Chris, let's jump right into the truth prescription. Um, you know, for my for my listeners, my old listeners, you know this, but for the, any new listeners, the premise of the podcast is that all successful people, um, no matter their industry, have had to go through and deal with certain truths. And it was accepting those truths, really accepting those truths that allowed them to become more successful, break through and get to the other side to, to continue on with the success. Um, so Chris, you want to, you want to do your, your personal truth or your, or your professional truth first? Uh, we can go personal. Okay. are right. personal. Oh, you going personal. Okay. Yeah. Well, most, you know, <laughs> most, most people most say people, professional. Most people say professional. Nah, I, to don't,
1: keep. I don't mind. Nothing most to hide. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Um, my personal truth was uh, not to get too religious, but basically when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I was 21 years old and that, that changed my whole life. Uh, and everything I do, I've done since then has been powerfully impacted by that yeah. decision. Um, I was raised Catholic, like I said, in a a good family. Uh, Parents will have been married 53 years in October, Mm -hmm. which is great. Um, But even though I was raised Catholic, I was involved. You know, I wasn't really living out any type of Christian faith. I was getting involved in sexual immorality, drunkenness, hazing fraternity pledges. Uh, I mean, Cap Alpha Psi, you know. So, um, which best frat there is? Crimson and Cream. That's right. <laughs> um, but I began when I began my sophomore year dating the woman who's now my wife. She was the first friend that I had that I was really close with that exposed me to biblical Christianity. Okay, reading the Bible, trying to follow, live out you know the teachings of the Bible, uh, and and having a personal relationship with jesus christ versus just following rules and regulations religious rules and regulations which is what i had kind of been taught to do the church in general was something like i had never experienced everybody seemed to be happy singing the music was on the walls and you know just people were excited which i hadn't i wasn't used to seeing that in church i was used Mm. to like basically counting down the minutes till i got out (laughs) you know what i mean like Catholic church was boring. I mean, just point blank, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it it was odd. So I remember when they gave the altar call that day, I was like, Mm. I felt like everybody was looking at me like you, you need to go down Mm. there and give your life to Christ. And to be honest, like I said, I didn't want to, so I didn't Mm. go down. I was literally praying, God, don't make this man come pull me down (laughs) in front of these people. And, And so I left there, didn't go down, didn't give my life to Christ, but I knew that I needed to, um, felt that calling, Yeah. And, uh, but I just, I actually was still up on campus getting a little worse doing, doing crazy stuff and, um, God bless still that summer to have a summer internship at the Cleveland Plain dealer newspaper, which was going into my senior year. So I did well. They, uh, and they told me toward the end of the internship, they were going to hire me when I graduated. So I'm like, wow, yo, this is great. You know, (laughs) you know, you've been through college to know going into your senior year, you're going to get a job when you graduate. You're going, it's a good job, making pretty good money. And uh, in sports, you know, sports writing. Yeah, it was like, this is great. So I was (laughs) excited. I was hyped. But then after about a few days or a week or whatever, I began to feel like, man, is this it? Like, is this all that life is about? You know, because all my life I grew up being taught that the American dream was what life was about. You know, um, go to school, get good grades so you can go to a good college so you can get a good job. And that was that was life, the American dream. And now here I was with the American dream in my grasp. Mm. Right. Within the within my grasp, in the palm of my hand. Obviously, it was a year away. But, you know, it was like. I'm set. I mean, yeah, I wasn't done. rich, but I, I'm i on my way, okay? I've made I'm, – I'm on my way. I'm there. I've got the American dream in my grasp, and it was just like, is this it? There's got to be more to life than this. And I knew it was because I was running from God and hadn't given my life to him, but I didn't – I was looking for loopholes, you know, <laughs> like, man, I, I – you know – I'm looking for all ways to fill that void that I felt, that emptiness. Because when you have what life can offer and you're not content, you're not happy, you're not satisfied, that can be scary. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about some of the some we've seen celebrities commit suicide lately. Now, think about they got all the money that they could want. Mm -hmm. They got fame. They got a nice, great career. People respect them, look up to them and think if you you got all that, but you feel an emptiness inside. That can be scary. And that's where I was. I wasn't on the level of celebrity or rich or anything, but I felt like, man, this is this is all life's about. I, I read articles. I remember reading an article about Bobby Brown. I remember the article saying he was happier when he was poor than when he was rich Mm. because money brought so many problems. And, you know, that's when Bobby Brown was hot. You know, (laughs) don't be cruel, my prerogative, Tenderoni, 1989, (laughs) all that, you know. And so um, I I watched a movie on Elvis Presley and he had everything. You know, Mm -hmm. Elvis was, gosh, he's a national hero, essentially. Mm -hmm. All the women, all the money, all the fame you could want but was miserable and basically died of a drug overdose, and you know, addicted to drugs. And I'm because he's trying to kill for you know, fill that void, that emptiness. And I was like, man, these people had everything you could want, and they're not happy. Yeah, because I was looking if I just get this, if I get that, it'll fill this void, and I don't have to give my life to Christ. You know, because really, I didn't want to repent. I didn't want to. I knew I didn't have to be perfect. But I didn't even want to try to stop sinning. Well, how am I? I don't see. Ain't none of my boys out there trying to live for God. Right. You know, ain't none of my, all my frat brothers All you know, we doing this and doing that. And I'm going to be the one. Like, no, you know what I mean? Like, no, I wasn't trying. But Now,
0: now was Crystal, was she um, not pressuring you, but was she like encouraging you to, like, how was her? She
1: was. She definitely never pressured me. Okay. she was very subtle. You know, like I said, we would pray. And again, I was open to praying. I wasn't against God, you know, so we would pray. Um I would be open to going to church. Uh a little bit I think read the Bible together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um but I could I tell you what? I I don't think we would have ended up together if I wouldn't have become a Christian. Cuz I could yeah. you could see the relationship fraying a little bit you know so, and I think it was just her you know maybe getting tired of some of my foolishness <laughs> and you know uh me trying to go in a different direction you know and you know because I'm out you know I'm getting drunk a lot and you know I, I remember once we just keeping it real, keep it real we, we a had superst- hazed right <laughs> this is the truth <laughs> we had hazed some pledges you know uh my senior year and one of them went to the grad chapter and told them, you know, we were hazing them. And um, so we we were going to have to face, you know, the grads and maybe get expelled from the frat and, you know, the whole not. So, we, you know, one thing that taught me this is the truth prescription. You can convince yourself of something if you say it to yourself longer. Like we rehearsed a lie. Me and some of my frat brothers, we, we rehearsed. A lie that we were gonna tell that you know to the to the brothers if it came up like that we didn't haze these guys mm-hmm. you know and um I I rehearsed this so much I believed it wow. honestly mm-hmm. and I got her involved I was like yo having her help me rehearse wow. ask me questions ask, you know so stuff Ooh. like that I'm pulling her into my mess you know what I mean and it fortunately it never. You know, nothing happened with the fraternity and nobody got hurt. It wasn't like the dude even got hurt, but he just, he didn't want to be hazed at all. Did he he (laughs) He, end up
0: crossing and become one of your brothers? He
1: did. He did. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've spoken to him. I don't know if I've spoken to him since then, but um, yeah. Stitches get stitches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh it's funny when i because when i once i became a christian i was trying to give dudes man y'all gotta start hazing yeah. I, I hit them with everything the christian argument the afrocentric argument you know slavery <laughs> right, like right, this right. is a remnant of slavery this, you know like and you know but it still goes on but back to the to the story so basically man my 21st birthday i had been looking for loopholes Ways to, you know, try to get this peace and this joy without giving my life to Christ. And uh, so my 21st birthday, my parents were going to take me and my girlfriend out to dinner and they did. So nice. before we went out to eat, like Oberlin College was about 45 minutes from Cleveland where my parents live. So they came up. We had a my basketball team had a scrimmage that day. They came up and watched it. Then we all went back to our house in Cleveland. And so before we went out, my father and I went to run some errands and I I was like, daddy, I was like, what keeps you going in life? Like once you, you got two sons, one's at Oberlin, one's at Howard, both are doing well. You got a nice house. You got a good job. You know, like once you get all that, like what keeps you going? You know, you got the American, and he was like, you know, you want to get a bigger house or you want to get a promotion on your job or you want to. Make more money. You want to get a nicer car. Even you want to make more money to help people, help your family members. Like, it was good stuff. It wasn't bad stuff he was saying, but I knew none of that was going to fill this void. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, Bobby Brown had that. Like, Elvis Presley (laughs) had that, right? (laughs) And more, exactly. (laughs) And they ain't happy. So, honestly, man, with me, God just broke me down. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had a choice. I I could either keep running from God and be miserable or I could give my life to Christ and find some peace and some joy. And so my 21st birthday on my, you know, you blow the candles out of your cake, make a wish. Instead of making a wish, I prayed to myself. I Mm -hmm. didn't tell nobody into myself. I repented, you know, I gave my life to Christ, asked him to become Lord and savior in my life. And, and the rest, that's, that was it, man. Um, so My spiritual birthday is the same as my natural birthday. But that's changed me. Look, like I said, I grew up in a good family. I learned a lot of great things from my parents. But I don't think I'd be the husband or father or person I am today. I know I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I am today if I had not given my life to Christ, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's giving me standards and morals that don't shift, you know, with Every, the, the way society's going, you know, like I, I remember growing up as a kid saying being taught you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do. And it's being like, I'm with that, like yeah. sixth grade, seventh yeah. grade. OK, I'm a, I'm going to do that. And then eventually that wears off because everybody's doing it. And, right. you know, you just you tempted to do it. You want to do it. It's fun. And all some of my morals just went by the wayside, you know, but once I gave my life to Christ, it was like, no, I'm he's the Lord i'm his servant you know he's the lord and i'm following him and what he says goes regardless of what other people say regardless what i feel like i want to do
0: yeah you know so that's really
1: that's that's really man that's 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 my whole yeah that's
0: that's so the um the personal truth sounds like it's futile to run from your truth Right, Almost. like it's it's just futile. You you tried, you tried, you tried, you tried, you tried, and it didn't work. Yeah. Um. One thing I I heard you say, which I I really liked, was you and your brother would argue a little bit because you know he was you know looking at Christianity, yeah. he was also looking at Nation of Islam, yeah. and he ended up going to Nation of Islam, yeah. and his reasoning to you was because the guys I see in church, the guys I see at the mosque, look more like jesus than the guys i see in church yes yes and so that goes to what you were saying before about not just going by um, what is it um uh, wrote, uh prayers and just right uh, uh, uh what am i looking for? rituals, uh, rituals rules and rituals but yeah. actually living right you know living this life yep um because so. i knew
1: plenty of people that went to church right brothers you know <laughs> <Right>. myself even <laughs> but living it was a yeah. different story. And you're right. My brother, that's what he that's what he said. And uh that led him into the Nation of Islam.
0: Is he still in the nation? Then? No, he
1: he was in for about eight years. Okay. And he taught at their school in Chicago. He did security at the Million Man March in nineteen ninety five. Wow. Uh he was deep into it. I was always I always wonder why he didn't become a minister in it, you know, but he never did. And um he actually went to Africa with them. Mm. They went to Africa. They were going to you know hopefully they were hoping to get some land and um in africa and he was thought they'd do that and, you know so he was deeply into it but yeah he left after about eight years uh he had changed his last name not officially but to muhammad terence sure. muhammad you know all that <laughs> and now he's you know he's back to Bruce Hart, but uh but yeah, we had debates, man. We used to, it actually to be honest, it helped me grow that's in what my it sounds faith. Like. Yeah. yeah, that's what
0: it sounds like. Cuz I because
1: had to learn how to defend what I believe. Right. Um I got an interesting story for you too, um about that because I went to I I became a Christian in October and uh so I went to visit him in maybe April of that of the following year, April 1990. I was a senior in college and um Still didn't was was a Christian, was saved, but didn't really know that much. So I go to visit him at Howard whenever spring break was March, April, whatever it was, probably March. And so he's just starting to get into the nation. He wasn't I don't even he was you know, he was he had been going to Christian Bible studies and the Nation of Islam. And Nation of Islam was just killing the Christian was intellectually because they would ask you. At these Nation of Islam power studies, they called them. Why do you, why you pray in Jesus' name? Why do you do this? Why you and he would go back to the Christian Bible studies and ask these questions and they really wouldn't have the answers, you know? <laughs> um, and then in addition, like you said, he saw the example that the Muslims set. But so I go to visit him at Howard. So we hanging and we just going to all these, you know, we going to some black bookstores and Muslim bookstores, and I'm seeing all these books about the Bible is tampered with and, you know. <laughs> Christianity is a white man's religion and just books against Christianity. Yeah. And again, I didn't really know much. I hadn't read the Bible much, didn't know much Christianity, you know, nothing really. So one day I was in his apartment and he was in class and I was in his apartment by myself. I was sitting there eating breakfast and I had the Bible in front of me and I had the Quran in front of me. And I was reading both of them, you know, skim, skimming both of them, and I read in the Quran where it said Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and and in the notes of that Quran, not in the actual Quran, the notes of it, it said he wasn't crucified on the cross; it was Judas, whatever. So I I, I said, okay, both of these ain't from God. Like there, there's <laughs> no way both books can be from God because they flat out contradict each other. And so I went into his room and I just started praying. And I was like, God, whatever you want me to be, if it, if you want me to be a Muslim, if that's your way, if following you, if I should become a Muslim, if I should be a Christian, if whatever it is, I just want to follow you. And I just got this overwhelming sense, man. It was almost like I heard it audibly of just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. like it just kept coming to me. Not not Christian not, you know, Christianity, not Bible, Jesus, you know, because he was the one that paid the price on the cross for your sins. And it just was so overwhelming. And from that day, I I put, I put the Quran away (laughs) and I was like, man, I'm following the Lord. And that's, that's one reason, like, Nothing can really shake me from that, you know. I say that. I mean, we all face stuff, but I really feel like, man, nothing. You know, because I've had this personal experience, and and I see what it's done in my life. So, yeah. But uh, but Terry, it helped me grow though, because I had to learn how to. He would come at me with the Bible and the Quran, like Muslims. Yeah, they they do. Yeah, they they see they yeah. they know nation our Bible.
0: Different nation of Islam, different than Sunni. Right, right, right. Because right. Sunni, they don't really they don't really look at the Bible. Yeah, they they, they they just follow follow their Quran,
1: But they will, I mean, they know what Christians believe and they know what they believe. So he was coming at me. So I had to learn how to, I had to really learn how to defend what I believe and why I believe it, which is good. We all should know that, you know. And so it really did help me grow. And it also, he always was like, man, y'all Christians, and all the Muslims, Malcolm said it, Louis Farrakhan, they all said Y'all Christians, man, y'all don't live it. Y'all ain't got no power. Y'all, y'all out there doing this, doing that. Y'all ain't real, you know. Y'all ain't been a God. And so it also led me to want to show, you know what? I have been changed. Like this is real. I am, God has made me righteous, you know. And so it, it led me to wanna live, also live a clean life. As we all should, of course. Um, but just even the show, man, Christianity is real. Yeah. Like, Christ
0: has really changed my life. Live, live in accordance with the teachings. Right, and right. Now, you know, like, I got a, a real quick funny story. My grandmother, you know, she loved pork, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember I, one time I said to her, I was like, Nana, you know, and the Bible says don't eat pork. And she's like, Say, cool that was the old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus brought the new Testament. It's like, okay. Right. And he brought bacon with him. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I got a hilarious
1: story about that, man. I,
0: that
1: same visit to Howard to see my brother. Yeah. I knew hardly anything about Islam. Yeah. And I've studied it a lot since then. And I know a lot about it now, but at that time knew hardly nothing. So, he one night he was going to go to a power study uh, and I was going to go with him, a nation of Islam power study. And I said, yo, they were, he was actually, they were celebrating Ramadan. So he was fasting until dusk. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I wasn't fasting. So I was like, yo, I'm gonna go get some, some soul food. (laughs) And I'll, you know, I'll meet you at the, at the, uh, study. And so I was like, will I be able to eat in there? He was like, yeah, it's cool. You know, so I went to this soul food restaurant. I got some ribs, some pork ribs, and you know whatever <laughs> else—sweet potato, sweet potatoes, and you know macaroni yams, and cheese, macaroni, and cheese, whatever. Right. So I go to this power study. And the Muslims are out, out in front, and I'm like, "Yo, can I go in? I got food with me, though. Can I?" It was like, "Yeah, no, nah, you can go in, brother. You can go in." You know. <laughs> so I go in, and it was maybe 25 students there, and actually the second one of the highest ranking. Nation of Islam Ministers was teaching it. Dr. Ali Muhammad, you know, who was around with Farrakhan all the time, but he was actually teaching it. But so we're sitting, it's a small, you know, group. And I'm sitting there with the group eating ribs, (laughs) right? Pork ribs. (laughs) And they kind of looking at me, you know, people looking at me. And I thought it was because they were fasting and I was eating. And I didn't real. I had no clue it was about the ribs, so I'm just eating, and they they just looking at me funny. As he's still teaching, and I was like, "Yo, y'all want me to go in the back?" So he's like, "Yeah, why don't you go?" So I went in the back and ate while i listened. But <laughs> I, I didn't even know till I don't know how many months later that it was. I was eating pork in Getting the presence eaten. of the Muslims yeah. who have you know they don't they don't eat pork. So it was funny, man. But
0: so that was that was a, that was a great personal truth. You know, can't. You can't run, can't run from from what's driving you. You can't run from your passion. You can't run from the truth. If something is, is really tugging at you, you know it's futile. You're gonna yeah. end up back there anyway. Or you're gonna waste so much time trying to get back there. You yeah. might as well just you might as submit, well do it, yeah,
1: and save yourself a lot of heartache, right? You know, a lot Later. of pain.
0: Exactly. All right. So that was that was a personal truth. Let's go to the professional. You know, your professional life from your first job and, you know, actually you can go from when you are an intern, you know, at, at yeah. the Cleveland Plain Deal all the way through all your, everything you've done up to now. Um, is there one truth that you've sort of extracted from, from those experiences?
1: Yeah. Um, I would say there's a fine line between being arrogant and entitled and being confident and having belief in yourself and you have to know you have to be able to walk that fine line because you don't want to be so insecure and uh tentative and timid that you're a pushover and you can't get anything done you know you have to have a certain degree of confidence Mm -hmm. to be successful and so you you need to be confident you need to believe in yourself and you need to believe that you bring something unique to the table you know, but at on the other hand, you don't want to cross that line into arrogance and entitlement. Mm. And so for me, my when I had that internship, uh, I, I o- Oberlin College was a, a liberal arts school. So I majored in English because they didn't have a journalism department. So I didn't have very much experience when I got that internship. I wrote on the school newspaper. Somewhat, I wrote like four articles, mm-hmm. and they were all on the basketball team that right. I played on. Right, you know, right. so they weren't right. objective. By Chris Boussard, yeah, exactly about
0: Christmas. Right, right.
1: It was. <laughs> I was the star of every uh, right. game, even if I only had four points. It was a, it was a loud, <laughs> impactful four, four points. points. <laughs> but um, so I didn't have much experience, but I hit it off. I had a good, great, great interview, and the guy said, "I'm gonna give you a chance." You know, so. Nice. When I got there, they gave me, at that time, it was called a Radio Shack. It was a Radio Shack. It was like a precursor to the laptop. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was as big as a current laptop, but you could just see eight lines of type on the, on the screen. Mm-hmm. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And so Is they Is this the thing that you connect to the phone and yes. you can send your story? Yep. Oh, that's crazy. We sent story. Wow. When I first started in when the I was coming high school, well, right. yeah, you you would you would it was couplers. You would have these couplers and you would stick the payphone or any phone that fit, any phone into the couplers, and you would literally press down to make sure it's they stuck in and yeah. the word somehow would transmit through the phone. Wow. Yeah. It wow. was or even back then, there were occasionally times when the, because I cover start out covering high school sports, so there were times when you couldn't find a phone, or for some reason the couplers didn't work. Didn't happen a lot, but it happened occasionally, where maybe a handful of times where the couplers weren't working or whatever, and you had you would dictate. And a lot of writers did that you would dictate your story over the phone to an editor. Wow! So you're on the phone reading really? your story wow. to the copy editor and they're typing it in, you wow. know? So, um, so anyway, so I, the, the plane dealer, they gave me this computer and they sent me out with another writer who, uh, Elton Alexander, who's, I think he's still there, uh, mm. African American brother. And so they sent me out with him. He was, to cover a uh, minor league baseball game, Canton Akron Indians, and and he was going to write the story for the game, and I or for the newspaper, and I was supposed to write something for the e- editors to see to see what, what could I could do. do. Okay. And so we get there, and I'm lost, man. I I'm like, <laughs> yo, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I got this machine in front of me, <laughs> and so he's just Elton's like, just go down to the opposing locker room and get a story. So I just go down and I, I, I ain't really know what to, you know, I just start talking to people. I think I was talking to one of the assistant coaches and I'm interviewing him. And so I get back up in the press box and I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to write, you know? And so the, the, the other writer saw me there. He's like, man, just take, I was supposed to send it in before the game was over. He's like, man, just take the weekend. It was like a Friday. He's like, take the weekend. It won't be a big deal. So I sent something in Sunday night. (laughs) So I get in Monday, and the assistant editor calls me into his office, closes the door, and just goes off on me. He was a volatile type dude. Real energetic, hyper. So he's yelling at me. Basically oh, trying to convince me that sports writing isn't for everybody. Oh, I'm sure there's oh, wow. something you good at, but it ain't, it ain't this. this. <laughs> right? Because I was writing in an English. I was an English major. So I was used to writing academic papers or flowery long sentences big words a lot of of commas
0: yeah yeah it was (laughs) it wasn't
1: sports writing you you dumb it down to be other than when i was at the new york times i loved it there because you could actually really write you know but a lot of papers they the average reading level of the average reader was like fifth to eighth grade so we literally dumb you you dumb down your writing or you just write it in a basic way in a lot of ways um so you know he was just going off on me you know this and 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 that was a big part of it was i was writing it more like an english paper okay. than a, a newspaper article and uh everybody heard you know all the other writers so i walk out the door and, Perse- public yeah, persecution yeah yeah i'm looking there people saw like he, you know they heard it and everything but he did give me some constructive criticism and so did some of the other writers and so i at that moment i really had to you know, man up, like I had, to, I could either just shrink and, you know, cause I, in my mind, I'm like, man, I'm going to be a failure in this. And my, my family was so excited about me, you know, getting this internship, Grammy, and Grammy was happy and, you know, <laughs> what they going to think. And, and so I really, it was like, you got to believe in yourself enough to know you can do it. You know, or you gonna cr- or you can crumble. One or the other. So that's where you have to have enough confidence, but not be arrogant. I wasn't arrogant to the point, man. Which you, you—that you know, was good. What you talking about? You know, <laughs> I go to Oberlin College, dude. Right. You went to tri sale wherever you went. You know, like, right. come on, man. Like, right. you know, you can right. be arrogant, and think right. you know it all, and so I had to be confident enough to still persevere. Mm-hmm but humble enough to accept what he was telling me and what other writers were telling me right. and apply that to my going forward. And I did, everything else I wrote after that got published nice. in the papers. like 33 articles that summer, you know, oh, so it, it was great. So, and I say that, and then another example was when I was at the New York Times and ESPN was, they had started a show called Cold Pizza uh, which now is first take with mm-hmm. Stephen A. Smith and uh, Max Kellerman. Um, at that time, it was cold pizza, it was meeting in New York. So they would get, they would call me and ask me to be on the show. And at that time, the show was seven, it started at 7 a.m. Mm. And so, 7 a.m. Eastern time. So I would do it, they would pick me up at like 6 a.m. when I was at home in Jersey, drive me in. But when I was on the West Coast, Because for the New York Times, I was covering playoffs out west. I was covering San Antonio and the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq. And Cold Pizza would want me on the show. So they would. that means it was starting at 4 a.m. And you're on camera or it's audio? Camera. Camera. Okay. So they would pick me up at 2.30 in the morning from the hotel. So I, I was like maybe right until midnight. You right. know, getting back at twelve thirty or one, and then they gonna pick me up at two thirty to be on TV. And mind you, for free, I wasn't uh, getting paid. Oh, oh. I wasn't getting paid. Interesting. So I was just doing it. I was just doing it. Like I know the stuff. I know the league. You know, yeah, I'll be. Who wouldn't want to be on TV? I'll be on TV. I'll do it. I'm so I'm talking to other writers. So one writer for the New York Post. He was he was like, man, they tried to get me to be on, you know, cold pizza at 7 a.m. I was like, y'all going to put me up in a hotel in Manhattan and pay me? And once they were like, nah, he was like, forget that, you know. Another writer was like, he was working, I believe, at the Washington Post at this time. And he was like, man. Broussard, you going on cold pizza <laughs> from L.A. at four a.m. Man, you what, how desperate are you to get on TV? Like, kind of, wow. kind of, like in a negative way. And so, what I didn't, but what happened, just out of humility, I'm doing it. Just I, I ain't too good for this, you know. I'm doing it. It's fun. It's not a problem. What I start realizing, so when I start going to games, I start realizing. People know me. Mm. The players now they know me. The coaches now coming up to me. I don't have to go to them anymore. Hey, I'm Chris Broussard from the New York Times. How you? They coming up to me. Yo, Chris, what's like, dudes? I didn't even know. You know what I mean? Mm. And asking me stuff about what's going on around the league, and so it it opened up a whole new realm of possibility. ESPN saw me. And was like, "Yo, we like this dude on TV. Like, he's he's really he's good on TV. He's got you know personality. He's comfortable in front of the camera, whatever." And the other writers, the two that that kind of criticized right. me, yeah, they just they they didn't really progress from where they were. Interesting, you know. And um so what I learned from that, if I that was the beginning of everything that's happened for sure. me in television sure. since then. Sure. If I had been like, man, y'all ain't paying forget y'all. Maybe I never would have transitioned into TV. If I had been like, you know, like like that, I maybe I would have never worked at ESPN. You know, because at this time I was at the times. And now I'm making far more money just doing TV, not having to write and report, you know, on stories and like I used to. Yeah. yeah. So um, so I that's where I learned like you you have to be confident. But you also need some humility. Mm. Don't come out of school thinking you know it all. You might be very smart. You might be brilliant. But don't come out thinking you know everything. A lot of young kids think they look at Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless on TV and say, man, I should be up there with them. I got an opinion. I I should be up there, you know, with them. I can talk about the Cowboys or whatever you don't realize those dudes and everybody else you said they have decades of reporting yes. and journalism experience. Like they earned those spots. Right. I cover high schools, Stephen A cover high schools. Skip was a longtime journalist. You know, I could go on and on about Michael Smith and Jamel Hill and Michael by Tony Kornhouse, Adam Schefter. Like people didn't just pop up <laughs> on ESPN. Right. No matter how good you may have been coming out of college. So, um, have enough humility to be able to work hard take and take advice right. and don't kill some opportunities that may lead to something great for you down the line.
0: And the other, another thing I heard you say once that experience is the best teacher. Right. And, you know, a lot of times these guys, like you said, come out of school and they think, you know, I've arrived. Oh, and it's man. like, bro, you don't know. I mean, you may have you some You don't know what you don't know. Right.
1: You don't know. Because <laughs> I, I played basketball in college, as you said, and I know basketball and I knew basketball, but... I didn't know what I didn't know, like talking to NBA coaches at practice every day, Mm. even talking to players like you learn so much that you won't know unless you have this type of access to the players. And even if you can, you know, learn it from a book, like you said, or from reading a lot, you won't know it from the experience of covering it and talking to the people and seeing them go through it and things like that yeah, so it's, yeah. A, it's,
0: it's almost like what we talked about before the difference between you know knowing or reading a scripture and then living it right it's like right it's the difference between knowledge and wisdom i talk right. about sometimes on the show yeah knowledge is you know you understand that thing over there wisdom is i live that thing over right there. i am that thing over there. that's right that's right you're <laughs> you right know. you're right so no you're that's right. that's extremely important all right cool so uh let's jump into some questions um is this a yes or BS? No, no, not yet. Um, <laughs> we didn't get there. Yet. We didn't get I like there yet. that. I like. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's that's that's
1: witty. Yeah,
0: yeah. We didn't get there yet. Um. So you you've interviewed everybody, you know, as a sports journalist and on television. LeBron, Shaq, Kobe. I saw you did Ice Cube. Um. Yeah. What and this, we're on an interview shows so is an interesting question. For you, what makes a good interview? And um, if you have the time, how do you prepare? This is for all the sports journalists out there listening who, you know, want to be in your shoes.
1: I think what makes a good interview is when you can get the person you're interviewing to be comfortable mm-hmm. enough to be honest and mm-hmm. share. You know, like I try to be conversational. There, there are certain interviews you just got to get to the point and get the answers <laughs> after a game and stuff like that. But when I do like sit down interviews like, like in I did zone? for my podcast yeah. in the zone yeah. or if I'm doing a feature story. When I, you know, I wrote for in the magazine, or if the New York Times, I was doing a feature story. You want to get the guy to be comfortable mm. because a lot of times they might just give you basic answers, politically correct answers, or what they've been told to say. But if you can get them comfortable, and not not in a an underhanded way, but just from a good, you get conversational with them, and they're feeling comfortable and they feel like they can trust you, and they just start you know, talking honestly hmm. and you can really get a good feel for the person. That's that's what I think makes a great interview. Okay. And so like within the zone, a lot of people love the interviews we've done with a lot of ex-players and stuff because I get, they say a lot. Yeah. You know they're
0: telling you stories, and I also noticed, like you don't have any notes in front of you. Like you normally just sitting there. Now I don't. That's what one of the questions I asked you is how you prepare. Yeah. But I'm watching him. Like he's just he just asking questions. He's just going. It was yeah. Because
1: that's why I say it gets conversational. Now you, I do prepare. Okay. And the way you you know I prepare, like I just you know I read up on the guy. Um, some of them I obviously know a lot of things about, obviously, but still like. Just, you, you definitely want to read up on their career. Um, any feature stories that have been written on them before you want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, just so you, you, you know, you never know what'll spark, you know, a good question in your mind. Um, and so that's preparation is critical, mm-hmm. uh, for a good interview. If it's, if again, if it's a sit down interview where you have time. Uh, so you have to prepare. And what I do is I'll write, as I'm preparing, I'll write questions out. okay. And one of the ways I'm able to remember a lot of stuff or memorize stuff is through writing it out. When I write something down, it's easier for me to remember it. Okay. So like when I go on Undisputed with Skip and Shannon, before, like when I have my question I know we're going to address, I'll be in my dressing room and I'll write down my answer kind of like in an outline form. Um, and then when you see as I'm writing, it, it is getting in to my mind. I know what I'm going to say, but the order and, you know, the logic and all that. So when I get on the set, you know, I'm not looking at notes. I don't have anything. I'm, I'm just, but that's helped me remember what I want to say. Okay. So it's the same Good thing technique. with interviews. So I have a note. I have, you know, a lot of interviews. I have a note card in front of me, um, or even my computer and if I need to go to it, I will, but generally I remember the stuff and the conversation can lead you to certain questions as well yeah, so um, but like I said, I think I think personally the best interview is a conversational one okay. Now there are people that will tell you make your questions basic like there are people that will tell you if you're doing an interview uh, what was it like to play Michael Jordan in the finals? What was pressure. it like to, uh, you, when you won your first championship, what was it? Like, they quick, don't, they, they'll tell you, don't bring yourself into the, into the uh, interview. Hmm. I'm a little different yeah. because I'll be like, man, yo, you faced Jordan. You had to guard <laughs> Jordan, right? <laughs> right, right the right. best player ever. What was that like? Like, I mean, you grew up with his posters on your wall. Like, so, And now you're guarding What was it like? Yeah. Now, what do you think's gonna get a more animated, truthful answer? Right. I think the Part second two. way, because yeah. now they like, yeah, man, yo, yeah. I Jordan, I looked up to Jordan so much. Every day I woke up, I would smack the poster because I wanted to get some of that <laughs> on. Me. You know, what I mean, right. but you never. That that's how I think it should be done.
0: Yeah, that's how. I and think I think I also done. think those very direct questions they don't allow the uh, the interviewer, the, inter- the person being interviewed, any much leeway to sort of. Give those creative answers. So to think right. outside of the box is like, you know, what color shirt do you have on Chris Broussard? That I mean, wh- How many questions, how many ways can you answer right, that question? Right, right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Versus. Yeah. So tell me about your wardrobe. Yeah. What do you you know, what, what makes you feel exactly. good about Exactly. And some which of man. it is
1: like if you're after a game and you need answers, yes. sometimes yes. yeah, a direct question. Yes. You ain't gonna you sure. don't have time to get all conversation. But when you're doing a sit down and it's a, oh, maybe on television or a radio or podcast, then you want to, you know, you want to bring out stuff from the, the person. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it depends on really what kind of interview you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening. Look out for part two with Chris Broussard coming up on Monday, October 1st. And remember, the truth will set you free if you let it.